0: When we met two weeks ago, we talked about uh, Paul's defense of the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He began a strain of thought that is going to continue uh, throughout at least chapter number 4, and there's even kind of hints at it in chapter number 5, and that is of the covenant promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 as the basis and foundation of salvation by grace. Uh, Can I say to you tonight that there is no salvation outside of salvation by grace? When we speak of salvation of the soul, the redemption of sin-fallen man, grace is the only means through which God accomplishes that. We know that that's true uh, because the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. And uh, that phrase is used, you'll find that phrase used in three different books of the Bible in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, it's first found in the Old Testament. Uh, and I believe the the book of Malachi. I may be wrong about that, but that's what I'm wanting to say off the top of my head. Uh, That phrase, the just shall live by faith. But it's also found in the book of Galatians, in the book of, uh, of Romans, and in the book of Hebrews. You'll find that phrase, the just shall live by faith. And it's very interesting, actually. If you take that phrase, six different words, divided between those three books, you'll find that each of them provides a different emphasis that is emphasized by the usage of the two words. Now, what I mean by that is this. The book of Romans teaches us that the just shall live by faith. The book of Galatians teaches us that the just shall live by faith. And the book of Hebrews teaches us that the just shall live by faith. Uh, They each provide a separate emphasis. But as Paul is writing this, I think it's important for us to notice that he points back to Abraham as the character and basis and foundation through which God first made this promise. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because you must remember that these Galatians were being persecuted by Judaizers, uh, adherence to the Old Testament law and uh, the Judaic principles that is found uh, in uh, the Pentateuch. And so, why is this significant? Because they were no doubt touting to these uh, Gentile believers that they were the children of Abraham. And Paul draws that focus back on Abraham and says, okay, they say they are the children of Abraham, but just as the book of Romans says that not all who are uh, children of Abraham by the flesh are necessarily children of Abraham, he shows us that it was actually in Abraham's life that God made this promise of and by and about and for grace. So that's very significant in this argument. Now, how does that apply to me and you today? Well, let me give you a basic, simple principle of how this applies to us. There's many out there today that profess a work salvation in Jesus Christ. You know that's true, don't you? Uh, I was just reading, uh, in fact, last night, I was reading about a fellow, and if you don't know who he is, God bless you, you don't need to know. But if you do know the name T.D. Jakes, I was reading some things about uh, some things that that fellow believes, and he's a big name, you know, TV preacher and uh, what have you. He comes from a oneness Pentecostal background. And uh, oneness Pentecostals believe in a heresy concerning the Trinity called modalism. Now, this is in our lesson tonight, but it will help you to know it. You say, what is modalism, preacher? Modalism is the belief that God is one God and that the Trinity is that he has manifested himself in three different ways, or could we use the word modes? Now, you say, preacher, do you believe that? Not if I'm going to believe the Bible, I don't. You see, the Word of God teaches not that we have one God that manifests Himself in three different modes, but rather that we have one God who is three distinct persons. Each one of them, holy God, in and of themselves, and all three of them being the Godhead. Uh, now, I believe that, and the reason I bring that up is because oneness, Pentecostalism, uh, and this heresy of modalism, they believe in a work salvation. They believe in salvation through water baptism. Uh, and through their own good works. Now, uh, how does what Paul wrote about Abraham apply to us today? These Judaizers were saying, hey, we're the children of Abraham, you know, and so we have to do it like Abraham did, by works. And there will be some today that will say, hey, we're followers of Jesus Christ. You have to be baptized to be saved, just like Jesus was baptized, just like everybody was baptized. But can I propose to you that just as they pointed to Abraham as being the symbol of salvation by works... And yet Paul shows that if anything, Abraham is a representative of salvation by grace. Could I say to you today that they may profess salvation through good works in Jesus Christ, but if we could do it by good works, there would have been no reason for Jesus Christ to come and die for us. So the very person that uh, many religions are claiming to be earning their way to heaven through uh, it's a self-defeating principle because He need not come if we could get to heaven on our own and through our own good works. Uh, so I want us to read the... We'll, we'll begin at verse number 1, although we're really going to pick up our lesson tonight beginning at verse number 10. But to give us some context, the Bible says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only what I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God... And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now that's referencing what God says in Genesis chapter 15. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So we're dealing with some very dynamic thoughts here. You understand that in the Jews' mind, those that were of the ethnic lineage of Abraham, they were the children of Abraham. But Paul's saying, no, that's not what distinguishes the children of Abraham. Let me make a dispensational comment here that is important for us to understand. Throughout God's dealings with the Jewish people, there were two sets of promises, or two categories of promises, that God made to Abraham and to Abraham's lineage. There were times when he would look at Abraham and he would say, Abraham, I want you to count. The sands of the sea. I want you to count the grains of sand and number them if you can. And, of course, Abraham would always say, no, Lord, I can't. This is one category. You see, this is an earthly promise that God's making. But then there's a second uh, category of promises. There were times when God would look at Abraham and say, Abraham, I want you to look up into the heavens, and I want you to count the stars and tell me the number of them. And, of course, Abraham would say, Lord, I cannot. Let me say that God has made earthly promises to an earthly people that we know as the Jews, the children of Israel. It's that very group of people that to this day reside in that much-disputed and much-fought-for strip of land over in the Middle East. They are God's favored and elect people. God has chosen them. God has made promises to them uh, that all of the Palestinian states and nations And every socialist and communist dictator of times past and of times present and of times future cannot disannul, cannot undo, though the entire world set themselves in array against the Jews, and one day they will, they will not uh, expel them from that promised place that God has reserved for them. But let me say, too, that there are these spiritual promises that God has made, and it's of these spiritual promises that we're speaking there, there is a pluralism here, if I can use that word without abusing it. There are earthly promises for an earthly people, but there are heavenly promises too that don't necessarily always have to do with people that are of Jewish ethnicity or of Jewish Jewish race or of Jewish lineage. And it's these promises that Paul is talking about here. You see, they were saying we are of Abraham because we are the children of Israel. We are the Jews by ethnicity. And Paul's saying no. There is promises that God made to Abraham that were spiritual promises, that had a spiritual application, and of those we enter in by faith. We could uh, go there and we won't take the time tonight because we don't even have time for what we're going to study, amen? But we could go to Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11. And you would find there uh, much of God's plan and much of the principles that these things operate under, how that you and I as Gentiles, as part of the wild olive tree, have been cut out and grafted into the olive tree. We've been made part of these spiritual promises that God has made to the Jews. You say, what are some of those spiritual promises? Well, the first and foremost is this, salvation. Salvation is what? To the Jew first and also to the Greek It went to the Jews first, but you and I, we have been grafted in. We have been allowed in. And we see it there in verse number 8. It says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached the gospel, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. This was a spiritual promise made to Abraham. But through his seed, Jesus Christ, a way has been made for us as Gentiles to be grafted into that promise and to receive that which God had promised unto Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ, and by extension to me and you if we've been justified and placed in Christ. It says in verse number 9, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So the distinguishing thing about Abraham and his relationship with God was not that he was a Jew. I've had people ask me this before, and i probably even said something about this as we've taught the class. I don't remember uh, rightly, and if I can't remember, how are you ever going to remember, amen? But, well, that's why we're making copies of the CDs, you know. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've made the comment before. People have asked me, why did God choose uh, the Jews? Why did God choose the Jewish people? And, uh, you know, everybody's looking for a race war in the day that we live in. That's just the reality, and people say, well, it's, it's Zionist to say you Uh, believe God has chosen the Jewish people, and it's racist to say that. And, uh, you know, if it's anti-Semitic to hate the Jews, I guess it's pro-Semitic to to love them. I don't know. Uh, Let let me say this, and boy, I'm just full of wanting to say things tonight that, that people would be mad at, amen, but I don't think you here would be. Let me say that if it makes me a Zionist that I believe that the Jews will inherit that piece of land, If it makes me a Zionist to believe that there's coming a day when this world will be run uh, by God's elect people, if it makes me a Zionist to believe that God himself is their king and that he will one day return in power and in glory to set up a kingdom on this earth, if that makes me a Zionist, then you just call me a Zionist. I think that's being a biblicist. Amen? Uh, But I've heard people ask me that before. You know, why did God choose the the Jews? Well, God didn't choose the Jews. God chose Abraham. Abraham. And it's from Abraham that the Jews came. But what is the distinguishing thing about Abraham? That he is a Jew? No. In fact, the Bible says about Abraham that he was a Syrian ready to perish. If you ever notice, I don't know if you've ever paid attention, but Jews and Arabs look an awful lot alike. You ever notice that? That's because ethnically or genetically, I guess if we want to put it that way, they are of the same lineage. They both came from Abraham. Uh, The Jews from Isaac and the the Palestinians uh, from Ishmael. The distinguishing thing about Abraham was not that he was a Jew. The distinguishing thing about Abraham was his faith. That he put his faith in the promise of God, that's what changed his life. And so Paul is saying in verse number 9, So then they which be of faith, those that approach God in the same way Abraham did, are blessed with faithful Abraham. Look at verse number 10, we'll begin our lesson here. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Paul is beginning to lay before us, the chief problem with the notions and ideals of salvation by works. Can I say to you that there are a lot of questions uh, that people that believe in a work salvation are going to have to answer for one day. There's a lot of things concerning reason and logic and plain scriptural common sense uh, that do not g and hall with the truths or the ideals or the heresies, however you want to call it, of salvation by works. Paul begins to lay these out before us. Notice the first phrase, for as many as are of the works of the law. Now, who is that? That's those, and he's going to go on here in a little while uh, to say to us, uh, let's see, let's look down here and let's find where he says this. Uh, In verse number 12, the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them uh, shall live in them. He says in this very same verse, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in the works of the law. What are the works of the law, or what are those that are of the works of the law? Those that are claiming for their spiritual standing to be vested or founded in good works. You see, at this time we're speaking of Old Testament law. But there is a transfer of principle here that's important for us all to understand. And that is this, that the Old Testament law was simply representative. And I'm not saying it wasn't a real literal law, and I'm not saying that God didn't literally give it. He did. But for our day that we live in, I don't know very many people apart from Orthodox Jews uh, and even a lot of Muslims who try to adhere to their own uh, you know, poor man's uh, Old Testament law that they have in the Koran, uh, many of the same dietary laws and things like that that they try to adhere to. Uh, I don't know very many people trying to adhere to those Old Testament laws. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists try in, in, in kind of an empty, you know, haphazard way to do it. Uh, But very few people are trying to keep the Old Testament law. But here's what they're trying to do. Here's the thing that the law was given to teach us we can't do. They're trying to please God through their own good works. They're trying to approach unto God and say, Lord, I'm good enough because of what I have done. Let me tell you right now, the law was not given so that you could stand justified before God. The law was given that the whole world may become guilty Before God, that every mouth may be stopped, the Book of Romans says. That's why the law was given. So anybody that's trying to depend on their own works are trying, in a sense, to depend on the Old Testament law. It's very similar, it's the same ideal and principle. And it says this as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Did you know there's a curse given to the Old Testament law? You won't hear this preached in any of the venues that promote works salvation. But anywhere where you're going to talk about working or earning your way to heaven, there's a curse that must go along with it. Look what it says. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Did not James teach us this very principle when he said, If a man shall offend in one point of the law, he's guilty of all? The same God, listen to me, the same God that said thou shalt not murder is the very same God that gave the dietary laws. The same God that said thou shalt not, uh, you know, make unto thee any graven image, that's the same God that pronounced a death penalty on a man in the book of Numbers for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. That's the same God, you understand. And the same law, I mean, we picked out our ten, and I understand that those ten are very special. I understand that they represent some foundational uh, societal principles that we all adhere to and observe. Uh, I'm aware of that. But do you understand uh, that the other 600-odd laws are just as important as the ten that you'll find on some courthouse lawns? The same God gave all of them, And uh, there'll be plenty that'll say, like that rich young ruler, uh, all these have I kept from my youth up. But, you know, the Lord knew he was lying, amen, because uh, we've not kept all these. Uh, we've all broken the law of God, not only through sins of commission, but sins of omission. Well, we don't like to talk about those sins of omission. Oh, oh and most of us will say, well, I never murdered anybody. Of course, I don't know, that this rough of a crowd, I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you raise your hand. But, you know, I, I mean, we might be able to say, well, I've never committed adultery, or I, you know, I've never made a graven image, or I've never uh, murdered. Uh, let me ask you, this. the Bible says, uh, whatsoever is of faith, uh, or whatsoever, uh, uh, let me say this right, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whosoever therefore knows to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I I wouldn't believe that anybody in this room is completely guiltless of doing things wrong, but I would guarantee, too, that everybody in this room is guilty of not doing things that are right. You see, we're all guilty. And the Old Testament law was given as a standard. Man looked at God and said, God, what do you expect? And God said, this is what I require. The Bible says all have sinned and come short. Of the glory of God, I think we're probably taught, even as children in children's ministries and in Sunday school, uh, that when it speaks of uh, coming short of the glory of God, the idea behind that is missing the mark. You can throw a dart at a bullseye; you may miss it by an inch, you may miss it by three miles, but if you've not hit the bullseye, you've not hit the bullseye. It doesn't matter whether you may be a highly moral person or whether uh, you are one of the worst people that this world could ever produce. If you're not perfect, then you've not measured up to the glory of God. Now, I I said this, I think, last night or the day before. I've said it at some point. What is the glory of God? The Bible says of Jesus Christ that He is the express image of His glory. Jesus Christ is the example of the law, live live to perfection, incarnate before this world you know the bible says that he fulfilled every bit of the law uh the bible says and we actually see it in uh you know verse number four chapter number four uh if i can just glance and see it right before me i may not be able to glance and see it uh right in front of my eyes without actually having to take time it says in verse four when the fullness of time was come god sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law he literally fulfilled every single thing that the law ever demanded or required. We think of uh, Jesus, and we think of the Western Jesus. Now, I don't mean the cowboy Jesus, but I mean the, you know, the Western ideal of Jesus. And he's white, and he's long-haired, and he's blue-eyed, uh, and he's always made out of velvet. You ever notice that? And uh, he's got them eyes that watch you all over the, the building. And that's who we think of when we think of Jesus. But actually, uh, Jesus was a Jew. He would have looked like a Jew. Not only would he have looked like a Jew, he would have done the things that Jews do. Because he absolutely, in every way, lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled every bit of the Old Testament law. You and I cannot do that. And the law was not given uh, to show us uh, how we uh, please God through our good works, but rather to show us that we cannot please God uh, through our good works. The Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, what's sin? The book of First John... And chapter number 4 says that sin is the transgression of the law. Or chapter number 3, excuse me, says sin is the transgression of the law. If we have messed up, if we have disobeyed the law of God in any way, we are sinners. And we have a death sentence written over us. We deserve to die for our iniquity, for our unrighteousness. So the problem with work salvation is this. Nobody's perfect. It's that simple. Then that proposes this question. How much good works is enough good works? How many times and in what way do you have to be baptized if salvation is by baptism? Which churches, how many of them and when do you have to join them if salvation is through church membership? How much do you have to give to charity? Uh, how, how many uh, you know, meals do you have to prepare or how many bowls of soup do you have to dip out if it's through charity and through good work and through humanitarian effort? Where is that line drawn? What is it that we must do to please God? What does the Bible say? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It says in verse number 11, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. The Bible speaks of uh, from faith to faith in the book of Romans when it quotes this verse. Uh, From faith to faith. You understand that it's always been by faith. It was faith for Abraham. It was faith for David. It's always been by faith. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, the law was not given to give men an object for their faith, but to show them that they had need of having faith in God, that their good works was not sufficient. I'm interested in the praising that's used in verse number, 12, or verse number 11. But that no man is justified by the law. Now, if we just stop there, uh, we might have some explaining to do, as Lucy would have said. Because Paul said this, Paul said touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, let me tell you where work salvation falls apart. If you ask a man, do you believe that you're good enough to get to heaven? And they say yes. And Then you ask them this, good relative to who? Usually what men mean when they say good enough to get to heaven is they mean better than that person, not quite as good as that person. Where do we measure up? What is our standard? You see, in the eyes of men, it's easy to be justified by the law. In the sight of mankind, that's easy. Because all we have to do, we have this exchange, you know it. Uh, and, and I guess uh, us apathetic Baptists are the worst about it. Uh, you know, if you don't point out my sin, I won't point out your sin and we can all get along. And that's the dynamic of much of the casual Christianity, or could we say Christianity falsely so-called, in the church today. Let's not talk about sin because we know that we're all sinners. And if we talk about sin, we're going to hit your sin, we're going to hit my sin. So let's just not talk about sin because we don't want to admit that we're sinners. It's easy to be justified in the sight of man, by the law, because no man is wanting to admit his own weakness and his own inability, so he's willing to overlook yours if you'll overlook his. Here's the question, where do we stand in the sight of God? Where do we stand in the sight of God? I, I, never have we lived in a time where men spoke so much about heaven and cared so little for the opinion of the God of heaven as we do today. Men are willing to talk about righteousness, talk about church, talk about religion... Talk about heaven, books being written, seminars being held, uh, you know, uh, DVDs being sold. But at the end of the day, men have forgotten this one simple truth: we must ask God how He feels about the matter, because it's His heaven; it belongs to Him. You see, it's in the eyes of God that we cannot be justified. Look at verse number twelve, and the law is not of faith. That right there will clear up so much bad theology. If we will just engrave that on our, on our mind's eye. The law is not of faith. It's not about having faith in the law. Because the law is not of faith. The idea of the law and faith are totally opposite of one another. What is the principle of the law? But the man that doeth them shall live in them. When a person claims their good works can get them to heaven, they have bound themselves to a life of perfection. I remember hearing a story told one time of a, uh, and I, it's just too funny not to share with you, so I'm going to. Uh, most of you probably know the name Oliver B. Green, and you, you remember, and you probably read his books and heard him on the radio. Dr. Green was holding a tent meeting in uh, South Carolina, or in Georgia, excuse me. Uh, when he was uh, in his younger years. You know, most of us remember him from the radio ministry and the book writing when he got to be older. But he was a younger man. And uh, they were setting up the tent. And, you know, at that time, and I guess still today with tent ministries, one of the things a lot of times they do, if they knew there was going to be rainy weather, they'd dig a big trench around it. And that way the rain could not flood out the tent. And uh, Dr. Green was down in the midst of that pit, probably, you know, four foot deep in that thing covered in, in, in red Georgia clay, I mean, just, just head to toe. And he said that he heard this car come screeching to a halt, big old beautiful car, and a man got out in a big old blue double-breasted suit and walked up and said, what's going on here? And uh, Oliver Green said, well, you know, we're, we're, just, we're preachers here, and we're setting up a tent, going to have a gospel meeting, hope to see sinners saved. And he said, well, that's wonderful, just so long as you're not one of those once saved, always saved Baptist outfits... And uh, Dr. Green said, well, yes, sir, we do believe in the eternal security of the believer, uh, and we do believe that uh, it's only in Jesus Christ. Uh, and that man said, well, I believe salvation is through good works. Dr. Green said, well, have you ever sinned? And he stretched out his you know, lapel, and he said, I've not sinned in 20 years. And Dr. Green got out. And if you ever saw Dr. Green, I mean, he wasn't a tall man, but he, he was stout. He got out them hands just covered in clay, and he grabbed that fella's suit coat and just spread it apart and rubbed mud all over him. That fella's steam coming out of his ears. He pushed him away and said, What are you doing? He said, Well, any fellow that's not sinned in 20 years ought to have a few pin feathers by now. He's probably almost an angel. <laughs> that fella said some things that if he hadn't lost his salvation yet, he probably did while saying them, and turned around and walked off. You see, the truth of the matter is this. All of us have sinned. We've all come short. None of us lives in perfection. And anybody that claims that they are living in perfection, anybody that claims that they are getting to heaven by their own works, they have bound themselves to that stringent law, to that ideal, to that basic foundational truth of the law, uh, that he that doeth the law, the man that doeth them, shall live in them. What of us? What of us that are redeemed by grace? How did that happen? How in God's economy, His dispensational economy, how does this all fit in? Look at verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now some of you are probably thinking, well what does that mean to be hung upon a tree? And uh, that's actually found in Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three. that principle is. It was not common to hang people by the neck like they do in the old spaghetti westerns. Uh, it's not speaking of hanging in that way. And though it is speaking of Christ's crucifixion, it was not typical in the Old Testament, the days of uh, Judaistic law, to crucify people. That was a Roman uh, principle. The Romans did that. It was typical if a person had broke the law Uh, And they were uh, deserving of death, that they be stoned to death. But they did something then that they have done for thousands of years since then. And uh, if you've ever watched any old, you know, like medieval war movies or anything like that, you may have seen this take place. When a person was a particularly vile criminal and offender, it was common for them to take their dead body and hang it in a tree on display that they might be an uh, emblem and a symbol of shame and reproach, that men might look at them and identify the punishment of their crime with them. What a picture of Calvary that is. That you and I, we deserve that shame. We deserve that punishment. We deserve that death. We deserve for our wickedness, our unrighteousness to be laid open before the world and to be uh, shouted from the mountaintops that we are full of wickedness and vileness and sin. That's what we deserve. The Bible says, but Christ being made a curse for us. He bore that sin and He bore that shame. He hung upon the cross of Calvary. and Now you and I, we can do like Paul spoke about in chapter number 2. We can look to that cross and we can see our shame and iniquity placed upon Christ. That curse that was supposed to be on us has been born and paid for and we have been redeemed. That word redeemed is very interesting. It has this idea with it. The idea of buying a slave at market with the purpose of setting them free. That's what Christ did for you and I. We owed a debt to the Old Testament law. That sin debt had to be paid. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Unless the holiness of God stand unvindicated and unjustified, and that holiness, by the way, and His nature is the very foundation of all creation. Listen to me, if God hadn't exacted justice for our sins, the entire fabric of time and existence would have unraveled. There was no way that God could not exact justice for our sin our iniquity. and We were a slave to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, like a slave owner, like a taskmaster, rode over top of us, constantly pointing us to our weakness, to our shame, to our inability, and with bent back and with furrowed brow, we drudged along, conscious of the fact that we were unworthy of God's presence. But there came one, <laughs> oh my, there came, is, it, is it, it may be church time, I don't know. There came one that could pay the price, could buy us, could buy our papers for us. One that could fulfill. The law said, no, they can't go free because they've broken the law. Christ said, they may have broken it, but I've never broken it. I'll pay their debt. I'll hang on the cross. I'll be the one up in the tree. I'll bear the sin debt that they might go free. And He paid our debt for us. And he took those papers and he turned around and he gave it to us in a love letter of grace. And those papers that once had our name written in slavery, and you can go through it, friend. Go from Genesis all the way to the book of Malachi, and you'll read our slave papers. You can put your name down every single time that it speaks of death and speaks of punishment speaks of unrighteousness, speaks of iniquity. Those were our slave papers. But you know what you do whenever you buy something, don't you? There's two tags that are usually on something that's for sale. One of them is the price that has to be paid for it. But then after you go into the store and you set that thing down on the counter, you pull the money out and pay it, you're given something else. Oh, you have that tag. That tag's still there. The price is still plain. But then you're given a bill of sale. You're given a receipt to show that the price has been paid. You go through Genesis to Malachi. You'll find the price of our sin debt. You'll find our iniquity. But you just open up over to the book of Matthew and you'll read about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of Man that's come to seek and to save, that which was lost. You open to John chapter number 19. You see Him hanging on the cross and you'll find that every single debt's been paid and that receipt's been given to us in grace in this day that we live in. He's bought us that He might set us free. Bought us and given us the papers of freedom. Freedom. That we might go free in liberty. We find in this passage that he's redeemed us. It says in verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He's going to begin talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And I don't know if we'll use it, but find your place in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter number 15, we may read about it. We read about it two or three weeks ago, but we may read about it again anyway tonight. It's just so good. He's speaking of the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is the basis of our standing in grace, this promise that God made to Abraham. That the blessing of Abraham, now what's this blessing? Well, the blessing is spoken of. In fact, we may just parallel and go back and forth. Look at Genesis chapter number 15 and look what the Lord says. After these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And, Lord, one born in my house is mine heir. And, behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. This is the blessing that God would be our uh, sword, our shield, our exceeding great reward, that we would have a relationship with God. And God Abraham that through his seed uh, many nations would turn Unto him. That's the blessing that's been made. Verse 14 in, Genesis, or in uh, Galatians chapter 3 says, Might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Now, who is Jesus Christ? We're going to see in verse number 6. I mean, I hope you know that. But why does Paul say it? We'll see it in verse 16. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 15 says this, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Why does Paul say this? Because men have a concept of a covenant. In fact, in this day that we live in, we have a concept of a covenant, but we use this terminology today, a contract. A contract is something that is brought about between typically two people, sometimes multiple parties, but typically it's me looking at you, you looking at me, and us saying we will do these things for each other based upon these conditions. That's what a contract is, and that's what an Old Testament covenant was. And Paul is saying, you understand what a contract is. You understand what a covenant is. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. If you spend any time, and you all are going to think I'm carnal, as an old goat, but I don't care. you spend any time watching TV in the middle of the day, you'll see all these judges on. You know, and I don't it's... I I don't even really watch them much anymore, but but you know what I'm talking about. The Judge Judy's and and Brown's and Alex's and all these people. And uh, one of the biggest issues is always, it's always two scenarios. Either somebody coming there that doesn't have a contract, or somebody coming there that has no stake in the contract that was made. What Paul's saying here is this, that a covenant is between two people, and a third party cannot do anything to influence that. If they were not part of that contract, of that covenant, if they were not part of that initial transaction, they can come in and try to say all they want, but they can't affect that contract or that covenant one bit. Look at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ." Why is that significant? Because the Lord's not talking about Isaac when he makes this promise. He's not talking about those which are Jews by ethnicity when he makes this promise. Look what happened back in Genesis chapter 15. One of the most beautiful passages, I believe, in your entire Bible. It says in verse number 6, And he believed believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness, speaking of Abraham. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now this was very typical as a means of establishing a covenant in the Old Testament. We may have spoken about this a couple weeks ago. If we did, you just enjoy it as much as you did the first time. They would take these sacrifices, they would divide them in two, place them on either side. And then the people entering the covenant would go hand in hand with each other. They would walk to one end of that sacrifice and back to the other. And it was signifying that they had committed to go the full measure of what they had declared with each other. That they were bound by this blood sacrifice to keep and to hold and to uphold this accord that they had made one with another. Now let me say this. These Judaizers, they said in their minds... Well, God made a promise and a covenant with Abraham. God made a deal with Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. But they missed a very important truth. Look what happens, verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God is making these promises to Abraham. Because he's telling Abraham, just as you are in this great darkness, your earthly seed is going to pass through this great darkness. But what is the stronghold that he has, the confidence that God will bring to pass the promise that he's made on Abram's seed? Look at verse number 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. You can read the rest of it in your own time. This is what happened. They said God made a covenant with Abram. Paul says, No, 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 no. God didn't make a covenant with Abram. God made a promise to Abram. There's a difference, you know, between a covenant and a promise. Just as there's a difference between a contract, And a promise. It's one thing to say, I'll do this if you'll do that. It's a whole other thing to say, I'll do it all that you might receive the benefit. Here's what God did. God walked through that sacrifice on his own. God made a promise to himself. God pushed Abram completely out of the process of entering into this covenant. I'm trying to flip and find a passage in Hebrews because it's just so good that we've got to read it. Amen. If we can find it. Uh, without it taking too much time. Uh, God made a promise to Abram, not a covenant, but a promise that he would do what he had promised and prepared for him. Look what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Be turning there. The book of Hebrews chapter number 6. This maps out what God has done for us. Hebrews chapter number 6. And look what it says in verse number 13, the Bible says, For when God made promise to Abraham, or to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, what did he do? He swear by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, now what is that talking about? God made a promise to Abraham, said, Blessing I will bless thee. And then Abram waited, and he waited, and he waited. And in chapter 15, he obtained the promise. Here's the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. You know, there was a time in society when a man's word was his bond. If you told someone you'd do something, that was enough. Uh, Paul's saying in the book of Hebrews, he's saying an oath uh, to, for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. wherein God. Willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. Who are those heirs? Chapter 3, verse 9 says, So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. You and I. The heirs of promise. The immutability. You know what immutability is, don't you? Immutability is unchangeableness. Concrete. Unthwartable. If that's a word. If not, I just made it one. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Notice this. That by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that it, which is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's the book of Hebrews teaching us? When God walked the length and breadth of that sacrifice, God made a promise to himself. Now, a contract's only as good as the folks that are in it. Isn't that right? You've probably had in your life experiences where you've maybe had a contract for somebody to do some work, to sell you something, and that contract fell through. Why? Because one party, or maybe both parties, did not do what they were asked to do. But who are both parties in this promise? Y- you see where we're talking about grace, don't you? Not about Abraham. Not about Abraham doing what was right. Not about Abraham keeping the law. Any more than it's about you or me keeping the law. God put Abraham to sleep. God made the covenant with himself to get seen the promise With himself. Immutability. The fact that God cannot lie. You say, how do we enter into that? Well, that's what it's going on to say. Whether the forerunner is for us entered. The forerunner. Who's the forerunner? That's Jesus Christ. God made the promise with himself. With his son. And his son has kept his end of the bargain. Don't you believe that? And he's entered in within that veil for us. As an interceder, as both the price paid and the priest that presents it, he has entered in for you and I. So this covenant that's been made has nothing to do with works. The whole basis and foundation of salvation has nothing to do with works. God made this promise to Abraham with and to himself. Now what about the law? Well, you remember what it was that Paul said in verse number 15, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed... No man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Verse 17 says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, God made this promise with himself, with his Son. This was confirmed. The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying the law doesn't have anything to do with salvation other than being our schoolmasters to bring us to Christ. The law has no capacity to save you. This third party, the Old Testament law, it can't come in and disannul the promise that God made Abraham by faith. How did Abraham enter into that promise? He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was placed within that seed just as you and I through justification, have been placed within that seed. And God has made a promise to us that if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we'd be counted faithful. Oh my, how many, how many weary and turbulent souls it would soothe and give peace to if they could just wrap their mind around this, that it's not about you earning it, It's not about you living it. We ought to live by faith. We ought to do the right thing. We ought to live for God. But it's not about you living for God. It's about a promise that God made to you that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'd be counted as part of that seed and you'd be blessed with that seed. Look at verse 18. We've got ten more minutes left, but I don't know if I've got any left in me. Amen? I mean, I could talk all night, but I might pass out if I try. Verse 18 says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Do we believe the promise of God? All of the things that God has promised, both to the earthly people of Israel and to the heavenly, those that are the children by faith, every bit of it is by promise. You show me one place, I understand there are conditional promises in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, but you show me one place where salvation is a conditional promise based upon our good works. You give me one verse where salvation is presented as a payment plan. You give me one verse where where salvation is presented to you and I as God does a little bit and then we do a little bit and it all washes and turns out all right you won't find one passage that will reflect that truth. We better get in our minds that salvation can only be by grace. You say, preacher, what does it matter? What does it matter if people believe a little differently than me? What does it matter if they believe that they're getting to heaven by their works and by Jesus Christ? Oh, it matters greatly, friend. It matters greatly because you cannot have it both ways. If you believe your good works are enough, you don't believe Jesus Christ's righteousness was enough. There is no middle ground here. I'm aware there's many that have placed their faith in Christ in simplicity that have done as these Galatians uh, did and have fallen back from grace. They've not lost your salvation because you can't lose something you don't uh, have in your hand anyway. You're kept by the power of God unto salvation. But when it speaks of falling back, from grace, It's not speaking of losing your salvation. That concept's nowhere found in the Word of God. But it's speaking of stepping away uh, from looking unto Jesus Christ as being your standing in the Lord and looking unto your own good works as, as bearing merit with God. And I understand there's many today that have put their faith in Christ, been born again, and then have strayed from this purity of grace that Paul is teaching and preaching, just as these very Galatians had done. But understand that no one ever gets saved if they kneel down trusting in their works and anything else. Uh, nothing, uh, no person ever gets saved if they kneel down saying, Lord, I want you to save me and I'll do this. And I'll do my part. People don't get saved by depending in Christ plus. They get saved by depending on Christ. It's the only way. It's the only means. The inheritance was not given by the law was not given by works. My goodness, if you go through the Old Testament, it's pretty evident that it's not given by the law or by works. Uh, You find me a more rebellious people through the Old Testament than the nation of Israel. You can go through and you can see on one page they're crying unto God and they're tearing down their groves and their idols, and then a few pages over they're just rebuilding them again. And yet God remained faithful. I'm thankful that in my spiritual walk, there may be times when I set up idols when I set up groves, and I'll go ahead and confess to you, I'm as guilty as anybody of taking idols and setting them up and putting them in a place before Jesus Christ and of putting things where they don't belong. I, I'm as guilty as, as anybody is of doing that. But I'm thankful that no matter how I fail, He remains faithful. Because it's not based upon me. God didn't save me because I got anything out of my life. God saved me because I called on Him to forgive me of my sins, to redeem me. His grace is the only basis of salvation in this time and in any time to come. It's the only means is through placing our faith in the finished work of Calvary.